Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening. Special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for helping us out with this podcast, giving us the room, the equipment. Brian and Mike, you guys always help us out. We really appreciate it. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And when you do, rate and review us. We're on just about every single podcasting service you can think of, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn. And when you rate and review us, it really helps other people find this show, and we'd love for more people to listen in. This week on Ohio Matters, Democratic Attorney General nominee Steve Dettelbach, and also joining us this week on Ohio Matters is Cleveland.com federal courts reporter Eric Heisig. Eric, you covered Steve during his time as a U.S. attorney, correct? That is right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We, we hope you're happy to be back. This is what your second appearance now? It is, and uh, what a joy it is. Yeah, Thank you so much. You're like Winston Wolf on Pulp Fiction. Like You come in here to just clean up, be like the heavy hitter. So That's basically what it is, and uh, I think it just gets better every time. So we'll, we'll have to see how this goes. But uh, yeah, you guys talked to Steve Dettelbach this week, so how did that go? So something interesting about Steve is that he's a career prosecutor in the truest sense of the word. So, you know, we kind of got him to nerd out a little bit about what it's like to prepare for a trial, what it's like to be in a courtroom. You know, we talked about some old cases and... Uh, you know, he's, uh, we have, I think the Democrats actually are uh, in the good position this year. They have a lot of good candidates for these down ticket races. And I think Dettelbach is, you know, eminently qualified. And it's not just because he played basketball against uh, former President Barack Obama. Right. But he did play basketball against former President Barack Obama, right? Yeah, we get into that. I don't want to ruin did. it. Awesome. No spoilers. No spoilers. All right. Well, so Dettelbach uh, has raised a lot of money. He's very competitive. I know that. Uh, you you have to kind of just give the edge to Republicans in Ohio. They always do well in these elections. You know, obviously, it's one of the big topics we're talking about this year. Is this a year that the Democrats make a move? But what you have to do to compete as, as a Democrat is raise money. And, and Dettelbach has raised a lot of money, just like some of his other uh, people who are joining him in the down ticket races. So we wanted to bring him in here. You know, he's tried some cases that have gotten a lot of attention, and we uh, thought he'd be a good person to have on. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get to the interview that Andrew and Eric did with Steve Dettelbach. And we are here with Steve Dettelbach, the former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Ohio and current Democratic Attorney General nominee. How are you, Steve? I'm really good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks. So uh, we wanted to start off and say that we wanted to ask you, you know, you've kind of worked around politics for a long time in the sense that the Attorney General's office is a political appointment, um, but you've never actually run for office before. So what, what are you learning as a first-time candidate? What it's like, what, what's it like running? Well, it's a lot different. And uh, it's the U.S. Attorney that I was, right? So, uh, you know, I always joked with people that when I was U.S. Attorney, which is a job that's appointed by the President of the United States, uh, that people used to call me the uh, U.S. District Attorney, the Attorney District Attorney of Ohio, and, you know, that was just my mom. Uh, so for me, uh, it's a lot different. Uh, uh, the process of being a career prosecutor, which is what I did for, for really almost two decades of my life, because before I was the U.S. Attorney, I did many, many years, well over a decade as a career prosecutor in different offices at the Department of Justice, Boy, that's a lot different than the process of, of running for office. There are some things about running for office that are incredible in a state like Ohio, in my state, a great state, which is you travel around to all the different parts of the state. You meet incredibly diverse group of people. Uh, the people of Ohio are different from each other in all these different places, but really incredible people, and that is wonderful. Uh, then there's the petty... Uh, you know, things that happen in politics that you read about or that you hear about. And, and that part, you know, I think we could all do without. 
uh, but it is uh, a fact of the process. And so, you know, I really want to serve. I want to continue being a public servant. I want to continue to help people as I did when I was a career prosecutor. So that's the stuff you put up with in order to try and help. So what's harder, preparing for a trial or running for office? Well, the difference is the length. So uh, even the longest trial, you, they're both very, very hard things to do. The, the longest trial I did, though, you know, takes uh, about a month. Uh, I used to tell people that I used to supervise, and when I tried cases, that if you can't explain it to a jury uh, pretty quickly, it's probably not a very good case. Uh, that's not true in a long political campaign in a, in a state like Ohio with almost 12 million people. Uh, you're out and about and day after day, month after month, out meeting people and doing the things that polit politicians and candidates for office do that can take, uh, you know, over a year. So it, it's, it's a long, long process, but a, but a good one. So one of the things we often hear from first-time candidates is that raising money sucks. Uh, what, what's that been like for you? You've actually had some success and you've been very competitive in terms of you and the other Democratic candidates have, have been very competitive with your fundraising. Raising money sucks. <laughs> I mean, you, you won't hear anything different from me. Boy, I tell people, anybody who actually enjoys uh, raising money really shouldn't be in elected office. I, I uh, believe you just said you came from doing that right, right before this. Yeah, so right. So this is you spend a lot of time uh, asking people to, to help your campaign. Uh, and, uh, and look, I mean, while that's our system, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is uh, that that's time that you could spend uh, studying policy positions, reaching out to people who have interests in Ohio, talking with people. And I think when people go into politics, they know that they're going to have to raise money. Uh, but as I said, I view it as sort of a necessary thing you have to do in order to compete. Uh, but it's not it's not my favorite thing. I, I We have done well at it. We have, uh, uh, on finance, uh, we have outraised my uh, opponent in this race, Dave Yost, every single report that has been filed since I entered the race uh, over a year ago. Uh, and uh, we have more cash on hand than he does. He started with a, a very significant lead, over a million dollars in his war chest from his years as a career politician. And uh, I think that's an indication that people are responding to something new. They want something maybe a little bit different, and my message is resonating. And I've been wondering about that, actually. Why do you think that Democrats—I mean, obviously it's hard work, but is there something else that's helping you guys be successful when it comes to this? Is it just the political climate? Well, I think, you know, all of us would like to say, oh, it's just because we're great candidates, right? Uh, and I do think I'm a good candidate, but I also think that this is a year where there's a lot of engagement and enthusiasm for something different. And it's not necessarily Democrats or Republicans all the time, but in my campaign, I mean, look at me. I am a guy who was a, a prosecutor for two decades. Uh, I work uh, you know, at a law firm. Uh, I've never run for office before, much less statewide office. Running against a guy who has been in politics for over two decades, who has run in many, many elections over and over and over again, and who's sort of switching from one job uh, to another one, to another one. And I think people are, are, are looking for something new. But I think that does kind of short sell a little bit, at least your time in the political sphere, um, including in addition to your work at the Department of Justice, didn't you also work for Senator Patrick Leahy? You also uh, did take, I mean, that time in the Justice Department included a seven-year stint as a appointed position 
uh, by President Barack Obama. Sure. I got my first job in the Justice Department under George H.W. Bush. I served as a in the H.W. Bush Justice Department. I served in the Clinton Justice Department. I served in the George W. Bush Justice Department, all in career positions. Uh, I worked for Greg White. Uh, uh, you know, I worked for John Dunn in the Civil Rights Division. Uh, so I've worked for Republicans and Democrats alike. But yes, I also was a presidential appointee uh, as the U.S. Attorney, confirmed by the Senate. I was confirmed, by the way, unanimously uh, by the Senate. Uh, 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 there's there's a there's a there's an old joke that people tell about getting confirmed by the United States Senate. They say there's three things in life you only want to do once: uh, get married, have a garage sale, and get confirmed by the United States Senate. Uh, but that's you know all kidding aside. Very proud of the fact that I was confirmed unanimously, and I think people would tell you. Uh, in the city of Cleveland and in the Northern District of Ohio that uh, although I was a presidentially appointed U.S. attorney and part of the administration, I did my job in a nonpartisan way. I did my job as a law enforcement person and uh, did tough things when they were required and uh, handled the problems that came down the pike. So uh, with somebody like you, obviously law is a field where um, it can be very lucrative if you're successful and you've had some success, but um, also... uh, People. Have you been talking to my wife? <laughs> <laughs> but then also, obviously, you know, uh, public office, you um, don't make so much money. It's more of a, it is public service. So what is it that attracts you to, to run for elected office and to be a, you know, U.S. attorney, whereas you could have spent most of your career in private practice? Yeah. So let me just first say, uh, it's not like some idea of sacrifice. I don't, I don't view doing public service as a sacrifice. It's a privilege uh, to get to do public service. Uh, and what drives most people to do it, and it sounds hokey, so I say it knowing it sounds hokey, but what drives me to do it also probably drives you guys to do what you do. You, you want to try to make the world a little bit of a better place. Oh, I'm in journalism to get rich. I mean, that's why I've, you know newspaper <laughs> articles are really the way to get there. Have you seen our numbers lately? <laughs> yes, right. I know. But, but you know, so, so it does sound hokey. Uh, I get that. But I think most people you talk to, whether they're in the FBI, uh, whether they're prosecutors, whether they're teachers, you know, first responders, whatever they are, I think they would tell you what gets you into it when you first start is some idea you want to do uh, help people. And that can be addictive, right? Really helping people can be addictive. And you, in all our jobs, uh, not just mine, but so many jobs, you might get through a lot of crud. There's a lot that holds you down and holds you back. And then you do one case or for you guys, write one piece, or something happens, or a witness or a victim in a crime comes forward and talks to you, uh, you know, and, you know, that's like addictive stuff. It's the, the ability to sort of use government uh, or use your career to help people, uh, that keeps you coming back. So why are you running for office then? Uh, well, pretty simple. I mean, for me, uh, the idea of being the attorney general, and that's, I'm running for attorney general, I really care about being an attorney, uh, is that the idea of the rule of law, which is a pretty basic idea, it's an idea that there's supposed to be one set of rules that applies for everybody. And there's two sides of that, right? There's on one side, the law is supposed to protect every single person, no matter how vulnerable. On the other side, the law is supposed to apply to every single person, even if they happen to be powerful. That idea is just not self-executing. It doesn't happen on its own, never has. It actually requires real people in there to fight for uh, making it a little more real in people's lives. And that's why I'm running to be attorney general. And it's attorney general, not 
district attorney, Ohio State <laughs> District Attorney General of Ohio. That's right. That's right. And I'm really proud to, to be running in the election. As hard as it is to run, I love our democratic process uh, and the idea that, you know, you get to talk with people and you got to convince them. Uh, to actually vote for you is is also something that's really core to, to who I am and, and what politics and what government is about. So there's a joke that attorney general stands for almost governor. Uh, do you have any uh, political ambitions you ever thought about running for anything else in the future? Hey, this is the first time I'm running for office. Uh, and so for me, uh, I really want to be the attorney general. That's what I want to be. Uh, and uh, and uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, it's all I have permission from my wife to do either, by the way. Uh, but, you know, to me, if they had told me, uh, you know, hey, uh, like they told my opponent eight years ago, you know, attorney general's kind of taken. You know, so what we want you to do is go be the treasurer or the auditor or one of those. I mean, those are great jobs. I admire the people who do them. Not for me. I care about being an attorney. I'm a pretty darn good attorney, by the way. And, you know, I think we need more of that. People who go into these jobs because they care about doing the particular job that's in front of you. And by the way, the best predictor of whether you get a chance to do something else in your life, I have discovered in my life, is not angling and all this stuff. It's whether you do a really good job at what you're doing now, by far. So, uh, so for me, I'm focused on being the best attorney general in the United States. So you grew up in Cleveland. You're from here. You know a lot about Cleveland and stuff like that. I do. Are you going to quiz me on something? <laughs> yeah, we got 10 questions, a uh, lightning round. <laughs> we actually, we did quiz Richard Cordray, but we don't have any trivia questions prepared for you, unfortunately. Uh, but, uh, but I'm curious what people, when you tell people you're from Cleveland across the state, kind of what people say about the city, you know, how you feel like the image of the city is statewide. Uh, they probably don't. If they have something negative to say, they certainly haven't been saying it to me. That doesn't mean they're not saying it behind my back. Uh, but to me, uh, people uh, have been very, very welcoming and kind about the idea of being uh, from Cleveland, the greater Cleveland area. And I, I do bleed Cleveland. So it's a little hard after I get finished talking about Cleveland in places. It would be a little bit hard for somebody to, uh, to, to come and say something, you know, that wasn't positive about it. You know, uh, I uh, remember vividly sitting with my dad in Brown Stadium uh, for, uh, Lord help us, the drive with John Elway. I remember where I was, uh, you know, when uh, the fumble happened, and I sure as heck remember being with my son and my daughter uh, when the Cavs won uh, the NBA championship. And I remember them looking at me and, you know, just were, they were sort of making fun of me because daddy's sitting there crying. And it's really, if you're not from Cleveland, it's pretty impossible to explain uh, to a kid that I'm 50, so I'm 52. So I'm the exact age of a person who had never seen a championship in Cleveland because I was born in 65, one year after the Browns won the NFL or, or the pre-NFL championship. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't think anybody would come up to me and, and say anything bad about Cleveland, even if they had something bad to say. And right now the city's doing great, right? So I, so I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what they would say. Where were you when the Cavs won? Uh, so when the Cavs won, uh, the, you mean the final game, right? Yes, game, game seven. seven. I was sitting on my couch. Uh, uh, I was, it was way too stressful for me to go out with other people. I did take my kids uh, to a game. Um, uh, because I re and I think we were down at the point that I took him to one of the games, but I remember thinking, you know, there's no way 
if they win, then I'm, my kids are going to look at me and say, but they won a championship and we didn't go, Dad. So, you know, uh, we, we, we bit the bullet, my wife and I, and, and took the kids to a game. Um, but uh, I was home for that last one. I, I couldn't go join people. I just would have been miserable. I would not have been good company. Yeah, it was pretty stressful, I'll be honest. I was I watched the game outside Quick Loans Arena. They broadcast it like on a giant screen and uh it was it was pretty overwhelming. Right. And I'm from Chicago, so it was great to be in the city being here, but you talked about the idea of if you're not from Cleveland, you don't necessarily know what it means to a fan to not actually have a championship until that moment. And Andrew and I are friends, and I can tell you that that dynamic definitely played out around that time. Yeah, and, you know, I, I also – I'm a huge Indians fan, and, uh, you know, that series was so hard, right? And I actually taken my kids to spring training that year. So I went, I took my 50th birthday. I uh, My wife asked me what I'd do. I said, I want the whole family to go to spring training. So we went to spring training that year. So that was the year my kids had actually met the players. And the nicest guy – uh, in terms of my kids treating him nice on the team, had to be in Rajai Davis. So when he hit that home run, you know, in the ninth inning, that was my house just erupted three times louder than anybody else's. Uh, but I have to say, as hard as that was, the idea that the Cubs were the ones who won, I think a Clevelander gets that, right? The sort of all the years of waiting and pushing. And so now it's our turn, by the way. So I don't want to be here in any seconds for anybody else before everybody else gets first. I don't know, Andrew, do you agree? It was it was it Chicago's turn that year? You know, this isn't a platform for you to spew your uh, your pro-Cubs propaganda, Eric. So I'm just going to cut that off right there. Uh, all right. Yeah, it's our turn this year, right now. It was our turn then too, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, look, I mean uh, – uh, I, I am. That's really, you know, I just love the Indians. Uh, so uh, so for me, uh, you know, like I said, you asked if people would say something negative about Cleveland. Uh, you know, I don't think so. Uh, not to me. So for much of your career, obviously, not all of it, but you were a trial attorney. Uh, so do you miss being in a courtroom or, you know, what, what was it about that that you enjoyed? I love it and I do miss it. Uh, I... Uh, yeah, you know, where else do you get a chance in a relatively short period, uh, a trial, right, to, 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 to have a drama play out that you're uh, one of the participants in, presenting evidence to a jury. You get immediate feedback from the judge, from the jury uh, about the case. And, you know, when you're a prosecutor, you get to ride the white horse and truly try to to help the community and help people. I mean, it is an absolutely wonderful job and experience, and I do miss it. You know, when I was the U.S. attorney, uh, I actually continued to take and try some cases, and I think that's the first time in many, many, many years that that has happened. And I told my staff that, you know, I looked it up, and it turns out that the U.S. attorney is still an attorney. Uh, and uh, I, I still uh, did that, and, and I really, really enjoyed it as U.S. attorney as well. What was the first trial? Your first trial, I, I don't know yeah. if it was a defense, if you were already at the DOJ. What was your first trial? What was, what oh, was the gosh. case? So my first trial was not a federal trial. My first trial was a local trial in Washington, D.C. Superior Court. Uh, and it involved a, uh, as so many other cases do, it's a street crime, right? It was something that happened at a bar. And uh, a police officer uh, uh, who was the victim in the case had become involved in trying to arrest one of the patrons who had had perhaps one or more too many beverages. And uh, he assaulted the police officer. And that was my first 
uh, trial. I still remember it. I, I remember when I gave my closing, one of my friends came to see me give the closing uh, for moral support. And I guess I was so nervous, I kept saying the words, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, like over and over and over again. And she came up to me nicely after she said, Steve, you might want to just cut out the, the, the repeating the ladies and gentlemen of the jury every sentence. get Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. As we said at the beginning of the show, Steve was a uh, federal prosecutor for the better part of 20 years for the Department of Justice. I assume you guys got into um, some of the casework and just kind of what it's like being on uh, that side as opposed to the normal politicians we talk to come from the legislative side. Yeah, he talked a little bit about how he was really a trial attorney for a lot of his career and really the the differences between that and having to raise money as a politician, as a candidate, and really going around the state to try to get his name out there. Yeah, and, you know, uh, so his opponent in this race, Dave Yost, is a former county prosecutor, and you see a lot of county prosecutors run for higher office, and they try, they obviously... um, it's a good uh, springboard for higher office because you get your name in the paper, you have a law enforcement cred that you develop. It's like a good way to get uh, political experience. It's just, a, you know, it's it's a good uh, office to have. The thing about being U.S. attorney that's a little different is that whereas the local prosecutors are trying these criminal cases that get attention because of the fact that crimes are scary or interesting or whatnot, um, when you're U.S. attorney, you're actually in the middle of cases that kind of are a little bit higher level where you start dealing with some like kind of bigger picture issues like corruption or terrorism and stuff like that. So we didn't get into every case that Dettelbach's ever tried that's been high profile, but we did cover a lot of ground. And I thought that the stuff he had to say was pretty interesting. And one last thing, uh, we talked to him a little bit about the pressure the DOJ is under right now. And we thought that he'd be a good person to share some perspective about the, the scrutiny that they're under just sort of in this unique political time. I think to piggyback off what Andrew said, though, uh, in addition to getting maybe these higher level cases, the Justice Department taking them on, they also have a lot of uh, discretion on what kind of cases they take. It's really the best of the best. So while a county prosecutor may be able to get some cases in the paper that may be the worst of the worst or the highest profile crime in in a given area, Uh, The U.S. attorney can take the most interesting ones, and they always take the ones that they know they can win. So besides the fact these cases are interesting, asking about them gives us an opportunity to kind of learn more about what makes them tick, and that was good. All right, should be some good insight into, uh, you know, life as a DOJ attorney and all that. And with that, let's get back to the interview with Steve Dettelbach. So one of the first big cases, at least, you know, in our crack research for this episode anyways, uh, was the Nate Gray case. Uh, Nate Gray, for the listeners, was a top aide to then Cleveland Mayor Michael R. White. Uh, He is still in prison, I believe. And so I was just hoping that you could tell us what you remember from that case. Gosh, so I remember I I didn't start the investigation into that case. Uh, I came to the U.S. Attorney's Office from uh, another office. And when I got there, 
Craig Morford, who was then the first assistant and a renowned prosecutor uh, uh, in the state. He had just done the trafficking case. He called me in the first day, and uh, he had a meeting with me and Benita Pearson, who's now a federal judge. Uh, and he told us, I was told that I was going to be handed this case for a variety of reasons. They had to reassign it in the office. Something had happened before I got there that caused them to have to reassign it. And uh, I, uh, Craig Morford had started the investigation. He was now moving on to other things. And, um, you know, it was a wide-ranging investigation uh, that involved many cities. It involved Houston and and involved the New Orleans, uh, and it involved East Cleveland, and later on there were even things in Atlanta. And uh, uh, it was really, you know, uh, the core of why a person becomes a prosecutor because it went to that idea that nobody's above the law. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we prosecuted uh, uh, Democrats, Republicans alike, uh, uh, both people in government and then people in the private sector who had paid them uh, in bribes to, to steer contracts and do other things. Um, and it was, uh, uh, it was really uh, an important case. I, the FBI that put together that case, the FBI agents that put together that case, uh, just did a fantastic, fantastic job uh, in being both fair and being thorough. It took it took years of investigation to, to really put it together. Uh, but it was an, an incredible experience and an incredible accomplishment for the team, not just me, but the team that did it. Well, you talk about it being an accomplishment, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the first time it was tried, it actually ended in a mistrial, which you can talk all you want about how a trial, it's such a relief when a jury comes back. But in that case, you guys had to do it all over again. Yeah, we did. Uh, I remember. So uh, you never know how the jury really votes on these things. But, you know, there was a uh, and I think this was even sort of publicly reported. There, there was a, a large majority to convict, uh, and there was a, a, a holdout or holdouts. You never know. But um, and uh, boy, you're right. When you present a case, uh, and then you're told uh, the trial's not over, you have to do it again in just a little while. And Judge Gwynn, who was overseeing that trial, is a judge who moves his docket quite quickly, and uh, we did it again very quickly after doing that. And, and you're right, Eric, that is just, uh, it's like getting to the end of a marathon. And when you get to the finish line, I'm saying the race isn't over. There's just, just one more time, guys, just one more time around the lap. So we did it and we were able to, uh, to get convictions the second time. One of the things I've learned over the years and one of the things that was really apparent in that case was, you know, when you're a real prosecutor, a real trial attorney, and you're going to do something again like that, you need to be open-minded to question whether you should be doing anything differently, changing emphasis, you know, change your whole theory, but should you spend this much time on this? Did the jury react well to this argument? Did they react poorly to this witness? Uh, you know, those are the kinds of things that you need to be, and it's hard, right? Because you're invested in how you did it. And you want to just say, oh my gosh, that one juror, uh, she or he just didn't get it. Well, look, this is, it's, it, it's their job uh, to look fairly at the evidence. And if one of them didn't get it, you have to change in some way, the way you present the evidence in, in many cases. So it was really, it was, some of it was at least a symptom. I believe jurors said that some of it was too complicated. So I'd have to assume the second time you guys did it, it was a matter of simplifying some things to make sure the jury understood. Yeah, it's not just simplifying. It's, it's you know, you want to present everything 
to a jury, just like I'm sure when you write an article. You, you, you'd love to have a, a, you know, whatever it is, 10,000 words and present everything. The, the reality is you need to make some hard decisions about what's really important to the core of the case and what's not. And I think you're right, you know, whether it's just too complicated or just too many things going on and you really got to focus on the five big ones and six and seven are fine and Mr. Dettelbeck, you might think those are really compelling, but they're just not that important. You know, that's really, I think, fundamentally uh, the message that I think in many cases you get, which is you really hone it down and you really try to focus on the things that are most compelling. I believe one of the uh, defendants in that wide-ranging investigation has now made his way back to the Cleveland City Council. There seems to be at least a little bit of a theme with some of it. It's not just that case. I, I can think of other cases, Jeff Johnson, for example, where, you know, they they did at least get to go through a period where they had that conviction, but uh, by some way of the system in the state of Ohio, um, they're at least allowed to expunge that and essentially move on in public life, in public service. I mean, do you have any f feelings on how that is? You were the one that was down on the ground that was able to see the evidence against these people, or at least in Mr. Jones's case. Yeah, I, you, you got to be really careful because you know, my job as a prosecutor was to do the case, and that's my part in the system. And I, I, I want to take off, I have different hats. I'm a candidate for office uh, where I can talk about these wide-ranging things, and I also have an old job as a prosecutor. I guess the best way for me to say it flat out is I think once a person violates the public trust in such a significant way, uh, they might be entitled to have a second shot, but probably not a second shot in public office. I don't think that's a good match, right? There's so many other things in life a person can do. Uh, the sacred trust of the public in government, uh, that's one that I don't think you get a mulligan on if you actually commit a public corruption offense. So we talked about, I guess, your time with the Nate Gray case. We talked about that wide-ranging investigation. Um, one of the things that really doesn't seem to have gone, have gone away as an issue, uh, even from your time as a U.S. attorney, is really anything regarding accountability with the police, with, with police officers. That can mean a lot of things. That can mean, for example, a consent decree with the city of Cleveland. That can mean criminal prosecution. That could mean a variety of other things. Um, you were the D, uh, U.S. attorney, though, when the DOJ... Uh, investigated Cleveland police. Uh, it ultimately led to the consent decree, which is still going on today. In fact, I was just at a hearing for that. Um, there seems to be a fine line, though, that you seem to take, and you never seem to take a stance, and maybe it's the prosecutor in you, talking about whether an officer is good or bad until you have all sides of the facts. It seems like, and this is not just to give you like <laughs> a big head about it, but you seem to just wait for all the facts to really make that uh, um, to talk about that, why is that important for you instead of just letting emotion take over? And I don't know if I ask that the best way now that I say that. Well, you know, to me, these are incredibly emotional issues, understandably, in the public. Uh, my role as a public official and as a lawyer and as a prosecutor isn't to judge people for having that emotion. There's emotion on all sides, that's fine, but it's not my role. My role is to look at the facts and try to make the best call I can and to try and move things forward when we can uh, in a way that can actually improve things. I mean, I, I was very, very uh, proud of the fact that the way we handled that case in the Department of Justice 
uh, was one that was really fact-based. We tried our hardest to to take a step back, to gather as much facts as we could, and to, to then devise uh, a remedy along with the city of Cleveland, the police department, and the community as a whole that actually improved things going forward, which is a long process, Eric. I mean, let, let's be clear. That's something that's a long process. And I think the way I did it uh, and the way others did it, not just me, had the other effect of, of instead of tearing our community apart, uh, making our community able to go forward. So you look at what happened in Baltimore. You look at what happened in St. Louis, right? Rioting, cities burning. You look at what happened in Milwaukee, where, where you, I think, were, you know, hor- horrible sort of urban division. We had a lot of disagreement here in Cleveland. Uh, but we also had a banner year in 2016, literally, we talked about when, when we dealt with these problems. And it's because I think, number one, people thought that we were actually dealing with the issues. And number two, th- people thought we were dealing with them fairly. When people think that the, that the system responds, whether you agree or disagree, they will give you a significant amount of time and leeway uh, to try and get things right. When they think that you're not listening or that you're just you know, pretending to listen. And I am very proud of the fact that I have the endorsement in my race for AG from the Fraternal Order of Police, police officers who do a great job out there all the time, from uh, a lot of progressive people and groups, from the mayor of the city of Cleveland, Frank Jackson, who was on the other side of the table as we tried to work together uh, to devise solutions. And, you know, that, that, that's, it's, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that when you try to actually bring people together, they might, not everybody's happy with you, but they get that you're trying your best to do something in, in, a, in a fair way. So that, that case, basically, for our listeners, the DOJ found that Cleveland police had a, whatever the verbiage was, pattern and practice of using excessive force and when dealing with citizens. Um, and obviously, it was very politically heated in 2016, um, the, the relationship between police and the community. Um, it's not something that you've heard as much about lately. And, I, and I'm just kind of wondering what you think about what the balance is in that issue and, and what your assessment is of how community police relations are going right now. Uh, so um, the key word you used was balance. Um, I mean, to me, um, you know, we do best on those issues when we when we don't do name calling and we really look at facts. So it, it's more complicated to do that, right? So the answer is, uh, it depends on the city, it depends on the region, it depends on the department, it depends on the community, and in the end, incident by incident, it depends on the actual incident. Um, and so uh, there are places where uh, many places where things are going well. Uh, I think police officers, by and large, of course, are doing a great job getting out there and doing the best they can with decreasing resources. We've cut the police departments in this state as we've cut the local government fund by massive amounts. Uh, uh, And uh, they're doing a great job getting out there. Uh, But there are always times where things happen that shouldn't happen. And we need to acknowledge that, too. Uh, And in those cases, uh, police officers uh, uh, many times uh, will be uh, privately sometimes, publicly sometimes, the first to tell you, like, look, you know, this this is not the, the way things should happen. We, we need to take care of that. But it's really, really important that we, we be very specific about how we talk about this because, uh, um, you know, I worked with law enforcement. I was a civil rights attorney and a prosecutor, both, in my career. And I, I've seen different cases, different angles on this. And, uh, you know, the police officers I've worked with are, are – by and large, doing a really good job out there protecting the community. And, and we as a society, as a country, as a government, 
um, especially at state government, don't help them as much as we should. I mean, it's one of the real issues in this campaign that people should really be focusing on in this election is the cuts to local governments that have happened in this state over the last, uh, you know, eight years. And to see our governor, uh, who has done some good things as governor, but to see him hold a press conference a month ago and brag about the, the rainy day fund swelling to $2.7 billion, which, by the way, that's our money. That's not his money. That's our money. That's the people's money. Uh, at the same time as he's cut all these funds to local governments. And then, you know, he said something in that press conference that really did bother me, which is one of the reporters there asked him about cuts to local government. And he used the word that mayors and, and cities around the state are whining. You know, and, and you know, it used to be that Columbus, uh, that State House Square area in the middle of that city, that it was a different area code. Uh, but not a different country code. And I have to tell you something. Uh, to hear somebody say that cities around this state are whiny, I wonder who, uh, if got, when the last time Governor Kasich was in Mansfield. I wonder the last time he was in Lima, Finley, Dayton, whether he was in Youngstown recently. Uh, I see police officers and communities there trying to do more with less. I see them trying to make a dollar out of 50 cents. And the last thing they need is a guy who's slashing their budget to hold a big press conference um, talking about them whining. So one of the cases that your office did was you brought charges against Ben Suarez, who was a mid-level to pretty large Republican donor. And the allegations against him were essentially that he was structuring uh, political contributions by uh, reimbursing employees um, f- uh, as a means to get around limits on individual donations. That was the gist of it. Um, he uh, was convicted of obstructing the investigation, I think, in some way, but then he was acquitted of most of the substantive charges that basically were the subject of the investigation. So what, what happened in that case? Well, so and he's mad at me now. Uh, he is. Yeah, so I have a billionaire who's mad at me. Um, and that's just what happens when you're a prosecutor sometimes. Uh, you, you, a billionaire goes to jail, they, they tend to get upset. Um, so um, let me just say this about the Suarez case. Uh, first of all, uh, <laughs> the day that they, they brought me that investigative file uh, as U.S. attorney uh, was, I think, the first day I had ever heard the name Ben Suarez or heard of him. And uh, that might be hard for him to believe or accept because he's been such a force in the direct marketing world. But, uh, you know, I had never heard of the guy before. Uh, and uh, it was a pretty straightforward investigation that the FBI did in the case. Uh, the allegations were is that he was uh, reimbursing donors to political campaigns in violation of the law. Uh, the case was indicted. Uh, but during the investigation, Mr. Suarez uh, tried to tamper with a witness, uh, and he, in fact, uh, wrote her a note uh, that basically told her that if she ratted him out, I forgot the exact words, you can look at it, it's in the public record, that the whole company would go down, and she shouldn't even talk to her own lawyer and tell him about this, uh, uh, this note. Uh, and then he attached to it like a three- or four-page sort of a a self-serving version of the facts and said, this is what I remember, and uh, let me know if this isn't what you remember, because this is what really happened. Uh, the jury saw that, and uh, they uh, they convicted him. As far as the, the actual campaign finance violations, Mr. Suarez ended up 
And I thought the defense, actually, I will give them credit, tried a, tried a really hard-fought uh, and good case. Number one, another person pled guilty to those crimes, right, uh, conspiring. And, and Mr. Suarez's defense admitted that it all happened, that basically he had had a bunch of people give money, and the next day or next week he had given them back the money. But he said, oh, I didn't know I wasn't allowed to do that. Um, and evidently, uh, the jury uh, accepted, and, and, and on those particular counts, they must have accepted or had some reasonable doubt, at least, as to his state of mind, his intent. Um, but it was, you know, when you have a black and white witness tampering charge like that, uh, boy, it's, it, it's a pretty hard thing to explain. So what do you think about the fact that he's now launched sort of, I guess, like a political campaign against you, more or less? I told you what I think, which is, you know, he has uh, uh, been in prison. He served his debt to society. And, you know, uh, like anybody who returns to society from prison, he regains his First Amendment rights and he's entitled to uh, to do what he says. I mean, as a prosecutor, uh, I've been doing this for a lot of years and uh, I recognize and accept that people who you convict and people who are punished because of uh, cases that you bring, they're not going to be happy with you. And Mr. Suarez isn't happy with me, but uh, the case had absolutely nothing to do with politics. And, uh, you know, it is uh, it's it's something that you want in an attorney general, which is somebody who is not afraid to do tough cases against anybody, no matter how rich they are, no matter who they know, uh, no matter who's on their speed dial, no matter how mean they are. If you break the rules, you get prosecuted, you pay the consequences. That's what the rule of law is about. You left the U.S. Attorney's Office. Was it early 2016 now? Yeah, I left in February of 2016. Yeah. Since then, I mean, Carol Rendon was your immediate successor. Obviously, we have a new president that did not uh, want her services after that. Uh, And Justin Herdman was appointed. uh, Somebody you actually, I believe, gave uh, very positive quotes to cleveland.com about well i made him i mean i promoted justin herman to be my national security uh chief he was my national security chief as u.s attorney i picked him for that job and you know we did isis cases together we did al-qaeda cases together we did a case involving an anarchist who wanted to bomb a bridge uh together justin uh is a stellar attorney and did a great job on the national security docket for me. So I think very highly of, uh, uh, he did a great job. But at the same time, he is now working for an administration that may not see eye to eye with the administration that you worked for. Um, and I think that has played think? out. And I think <laughs> that think has played. any possibility there? You think <laughs> Jeff Sessions uh, doesn't see eye to eye with all the things that uh, happen? I, I, yeah. Well, but one of the things that Justin did, which I think is in line with those new pol- uh, those new. Uh, policies and those uh, new goals they have is he dismantled basically the, the the crown jewel of your office, which was the civil rights unit. It wasn't a very big unit, but it brought some of the highest profile cases that that office uh, had. When you heard the news that he was doing that, uh, however it got to you, uh, what went through your head? Uh, well, uh, it got to me actually uh, from uh, Justin. Uh, uh, he is a, a, a good person and uh, and uh, really respects the rule of law, and uh, I think the district is lucky to have him as a U.S. attorney. Um, but I was disappointed. I told him that, and I'll, I'll tell you that I was disappointed. Uh, you know, to me, uh, the work that we did in the Civil Rights Unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, was important work. Uh, so was the work we did in the in the Drug Unit. So was the work we did. 
uh, in the white collar unit, the corruption unit, the organized crime unit. And to me, uh, my decision, instead of talking about his, my decision was is that a civil rights unit for protecting our rights to be one of the many units in the office made a heck of a lot of sense. We did cases there involving human trafficking. You know, when I started as U.S. attorney, uh, uh, I remember we weren't doing any federal human trafficking cases. And when I, by the by time I left, we had done, you know, scores of them, you know, and uh, that happened in that unit. Cases involving a, a, a landlord uh, in, I think it was Massillon, who was caught on tape saying they wouldn't rent units to, and then he used racial expletives uh, we, that we did in that unit. Uh, cases involving people with disabilities who weren't able to have access in violation of law to various places we did in that unit. We worked side by side. It was a great, we didn't even have to do a case. We worked side by side with the people uh, at the queue to make sure that uh, uh, people with disabilities could have access to seeing and hearing and you know scoreboard access to, to, to the Cavs winning the championship there. Those were all things that I think are really important and they need to be worked on. I hope the office will carry on that work. Uh, I think having a unit is an important thing, but I hope no matter what, uh, that they'll carry on the work of the cases, which is so very important. So you worked in the DOJ for a long time. Uh, what's it been like for you now that you're outside seeing some of the criticism that's been thrown at the FBI and you know the senior leadership of the DOJ, the whole deep state thing, all of that stuff? Uh, I, I, it's, it's very troubling. Um, you know, the, uh, the men and women of the FBI that I worked with for, for 20 plus years are simply, uh, I haven't agreed with them all the time, by the way, on cases on, you know, uh, I used to joke that, uh, you know, whenever you got into an FBI car as, as a young prosecutor, they, you know, every car came automatically pre-programmed to the radio was set to Rush Limbaugh, you know, um, you know, these are not really sort of left wing people by and large, they vary, of course, but you know. I thought the FBI does, does an incredible job, uh, and and there's so many things that we depend on them to do. And part of the Department of Justice and the FBI, part of what we depend on, is that their you know brand and integrity is beyond reproach. Not just here, but sometimes abroad when an embassy is bombed, and a tin pot dictator doesn't want to have an investigation of who killed our citizens because maybe it was some of his own people. And when the FBI comes in, he has to let them investigate. Because everybody in this country knows that's the FBI. They're the best. They call it straight. Our damage uh, by attacking uh, the brand, attacking the integrity, I think wrongly, of the Department of Justice and the FBI will hurt this country. Uh, it'll, it'll have long-term effects if we don't stop it, if we don't repair it. And it is deeply troubling to me uh, to see that occurring. Do you think statements like that, uh, rhetoric, would ever trickle down to maybe... I want to call it the equivalent in the state, but obviously local and state prosecutors and investigators. I mean, does that pose any risk to that? Yeah, to I, th them? I think Ben Suarez talks about the deep state and his missive on his website, for example. You know, look, I think that there are those out, I think it's naive to think that criminals and uh, people who are trying to get away with things aren't going to try to use uh, these attacks to their advantage uh, locally in front of juries uh, you know I think that you know we'll start seeing defenses 
in cases, or I worry that we will, where people attack the FBI to juries and that the credibility of agents who seize drugs or who seize evidence uh, could be drawn into question. And I just think, you know, both domestically and in our standing in the world, um, this is something we shouldn't be doing. Uh, you know, I tried cases with Rod Rosenstein. Uh, Rod and I started together. I was his supervisor, the, the current deputy attorney general. And uh, I am, uh, I don't agree with him uh, on a lot of things politically. He's a, uh, you know, uh, more conservative than I am on some things. We agree on a lot of things, but we don't agree on others. And I am very proud uh, that people like Rod Rosenstein right now, uh, people like Sally Yates, uh, who came here to campaign for me, uh, uh, all those people are out there, you know, standing up for the institutions and the rule of law. I don't want to get, I feel like, you know, at me like praising Rod Rosenstein, I could get him in trouble. I don't want to, I don't want to make things harder for the guy, but I, I just think people who stand up, there have always been people who have stood up for the rule of law. That's why I'm running, but there's a lot of people, a lot of good people in our country who are standing up for the rule of law and who the politics stuff, you know, we don't need to deal with that. They let that take care of itself. But don't forget, we need to enforce the law. So the attorney general's race is arguably the second most high profile, like statewide, uh, like state government race, not necessarily statewide because you do have a Senate race going on. But I do feel like it is fundamentally different than, say, the governor's race or really any of the other races in some way. Did you guys get into the attorney general's race and, you know, what some of the differences and nuances are running for that spot? Yeah, the interesting thing about the attorney general's office is that because it's down ticket, it's just not going to get the same level of attention that you get higher up. But it is sort of like a front line for a lot of policy aims. You see, especially on the Republican side, national attorneys general group organize uh, state attorneys general basically as like a policy defense for stuff that's making its way through the courts to try to bring up cases that can, you know, uh, push their way through the court system. And then you also, they are basically the top law enforcement official in Ohio. And so... They have a lot of discretion about uh, overseeing uh, the federal or the state uh, Bureau Bureau of Criminal Investigation. They award a lot of contracts for outside legal work. Um, they do kind of have uh, discretion to jump on to, again, like kind of like the U.S. Attorney's Office, honestly, like these big high profile legal cases. So under the Trump administration, you saw a bunch of Republican attorneys general get on to the immigration uh act that he tried to take basically blocking travel from majority Muslim countries. And that kind of duked itself out from the Democrats who are fighting on the other side. So that's just an example. And Obamacare, I believe, ended up in federal courts as well. Uh, you know, it's been to the Supreme Court how many times? And you've seen, uh, you know, each individual state kind of determines, oh, well, uh, it's a dividing line, basically, Democrat and Republican states, whether or, they, whether or not they want to get onto those lawsuits. But just having those lawsuits can really drastically affect how uh, federal law is uh, uh, interpreted. Right. And Steve went into that a little bit uh, during this. Uh, I think he ended up going in, uh, talking a little bit about a frequent attack that uh, many of the opponents of Mike DeWine have made against him regarding the Medicaid expansion that John Kasich allowed for, whereas Mike DeWine at the same time was uh, joining in on litigation to try to prevent that expansion. So then another thing the attorney general does is they have some consumer protection kind of um, responsibilities and, again, discretion. And so we talked to Steve a little bit about uh, the opioid lawsuit that uh, Mike DeWine right now is actually carrying out against the uh, manufacturers of opioid painkillers that's, that's happening 
Uh, there's some other stuff too. So there's, there's so much ground that we could have covered. And obviously like we don't want to bore people to tears with this really in-depth discussion of the minutia of the attorney general's office, but we did cover a lot of ground. And I think, you know, talking about some of these expansive topics, again, you do hear, uh, or you have the opportunity to hear sort of what's important to him and kind of how he's going to approach the office. Try as we might, we hope we're not boring our audience to death just yet. We uh, we want to get through a whole season of this. And stay for the end to talk about uh, Barack Obama playing basketball. So uh, for those who have been following the state attorney general's race with bated breath, which I think is safe to say a relatively elite and small group, um, there was uh, an instance where uh, the other side was suggesting that you said that you thought that the Ohio Attorney General position should be appointed or not, or rather than elected. So rather than relitigate what I'm sure is a very fun topic for people, what, what do you think about the role of the Attorney General and, and its status as an elected official? Yeah, I, I am not only in favor of electing the Attorney General of the state of Ohio, I am going to be elected the Attorney General of the state of Ohio. And uh, I think, as I've said earlier in this program already, uh, I think that's a it, 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 it's, it's a wonderful exercise and process to get people's, you know, have to go around the state and, and talk to the people of Ohio. It's a great thing. It's part of democracy. Uh, the other thing I will say about that is it's silly season, right? I mean, when that statement was made, uh, and I think you guys even called it, not you particularly, but your paper called it unsubstantiated because I had already put out a written statement uh, saying these, this is not true. I think that the attorney general of the state of Ohio ought to be elected. And I continue to feel that way. And this is when we talked about sort of things you don't like about the political parties, kind of just false attacks and people just saying things just to say things, uh, you know, um, you know, it's just, it's just not what people want. And, uh, and that part of it, you know, is the part that, that plays to the sort of the idea of why people don't like career politicians like Dave Yost. So one of the things that kind of comes up every time there's an attorney general's election, it seems, in Ohio, is the notion that the current attorney general has raised a bunch of money off of uh, lawyers who represent firms who seek state contracts. Uh, what, what do you think about that issue? And is that something that you would uh, be interested in trying to rectify if you were elected? I think, you know, our campaign finance system in general, writ large, uh, is something that we could use uh, a lot of work on. I am the endorsed candidate of End Citizens United. Uh, I, I think we ought to be looking at these questions holistically. Uh, in attorney general's races, like in other races, people give for a whole array of reasons. I think you know the reality is that as we have this system, we have to we're going to have to reform the system as a whole if we want to make progress. I think focusing on one little thing over here, one little thing there. You know, uh, I, I think, you know, it's very difficult. But, uh, you know, I think as a country, not just in the attorney general's race, we ought to really be looking at the role of money in politics. I mean, you talk about this. You know, let me mention another one that's come up in the race. You know, I'm running against a guy, our current state auditor, who took money from ECOT at the same time as he was auditing them. In one case, just days before he gave them a clean audit, after a whistleblower had come forward saying they were cooking their books. Uh, you know, this is what makes people uh, cynical about our government. And uh, as a newbie to this process, you bet it makes me cynical. It, it, you know, you got to hope that people do the right thing when they get in office. But if we're going to tackle this, we got to tackle the whole thing. 
So you've criticized Mike DeWine for getting involved on federal cases, uh, trying things like, uh, I think, same-sex marriage, abortion, immigration, and things like that. Um, what would what would be your policy if you were in office, you know, and, and you were being asked to join cases that kind of branch out outside of the core focus of what the attorney general's office is, as far as, you know, trying the, the basic stuff that it does in Ohio? It's a two-part a two-part test for me whether the Attorney General of Ohio should be involved in a case. One is whether or not the law supports the case. So this is, by the way, Democrats and Republicans both do this. Uh, there are people out there who the most important day in the case is when they have the press conference. Uh, that, that just shouldn't be. That just shouldn't be. So if, if the law is not on your side, you don't do the case, period. You don't do a case to prove a point. That's not what lawyers do. That's what you do. You give a speech and go run for Congress and give a speech. You don't bring a case just to prove a point. You bring a case because the law is on your side. The second thing, though, is that it has to affect the interests of the people of Ohio. I'm running to be the Ohio Attorney General. That, by the way, there are some national issues that do affect the interests of the people of Ohio. And that's what, you know, Mike DeWine would say when it comes to some well, of that. Well, let me, let me give you a, 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 a for example then. Let's talk, you know, specifics. So we live in a state, Ohio, where our Republican governor, John Kasich, he accepted and took Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. That led to millions or billions of dollars coming into Ohio, and it led to 700,000 Ohioans getting health insurance that never had it before. Okay, so in Ohio, 700,000 people had health insurance that didn't have it before. And their attorney general, Mike DeWine, went into court to try to take away their health insurance. In the Affordable Care Act, he wanted to strike the thing down, which would have led in Ohio to 700,000 Ohioans losing health care. Now, I don't know what the Attorney General of Alabama was doing or the Attorney General of Mississippi or the Koch brothers or whoever the heck else it is around the country who wants to talk about this. But the Attorney General of Ohio's job is to protect those 700,000 people first and foremost and let the other people you know, go on national TV and be on their talk shows. You know, that's a, a case where he put the interests of Ohioans behind his political interests, and that's wrong. So uh, after you left the attorney general, or the U.S. Attorney's Office last year, you rejoined Baker Hostetler as a partner. And one of the uh, issues that's come up because of that is that your firm represented one of the defendants in some of the opioid litigation that's taking place. So can you... Can you well, it still represents, excuse right. me. So can, can you tell, tell us about how what, how, what happened there and, and how you would approach that issue involving opioids and stuff when you're attorney general? If sure, you are like sure. So, so again, this is sort of, you know, um, this is part of the political process that you don't like a silly season. So I'll tell you what the facts are. The facts are that uh, I have walled myself off. I have nothing to do with that case. I haven't from before day one. Uh, I have. I don't make any money off the case. I have an arrangement with my law firm that any money that the firm makes based on that case is effectively kind of deducted from my pay. So I don't get paid. I've gone to independent ethics experts, actually two uh, uh, 
and they have both said that I will be able to pursue the case, and I plan to pursue the case as attorney general. Uh, and, and let me just say this. The other thing that is just incredibly odd about this is the fact that my opponent seems to think that having ethics is a negative in the race. You know, I'm, I'm the guy who's following the ethics rules and who plans to pursue the case and is walled off. And he's sitting over there taking money from the pharmaceutical companies, unlike me. I didn't take money from the pharmaceutical companies. He took thousands of dollars of donations from the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and he's saying, oh, yeah, well, Dettelbeck's the one who's a, who has some sort of issue. That's just ridiculous. You know, what that's going to lead to, you know, talk about history repeating itself, that's going to lead to another ECOT. Dave Yost took money from ECOT while he was auditing them. He took $29,000 from ECOT while they were stealing money from our kids, almost $200 million. And now, of course, four years later, when he's running for office, he's given the money away, you know, as if that fixes the fact that he gave them clean audit after clean audit after clean audit and three awards for financial record keeping while they were robbing us blind and spoke at their graduation ceremony three times, you know, that's what makes people cynical. You know, uh, I, I'm a, I believe, I served on the Ohio Ethics Commission, I believe strongly in ethics, uh, and, and that's what people ought to be concerned about in this race. So another thing I wanted to ask you about, and I actually regretted that I didn't ask Kathleen Clyde about this when she was on, so you, you have the, the benefit of being another person who's on the down ticket ballot who gets to get my second round of questions after I'd had a chance to think about it. So, but uh, I think one of the uh, storyline that's kind of flown under the radar this year is the interest in Democrats that they have in helping get uh, Democrats elected at the state level and some of these seats that have a role in, in drawing legislative lines and stuff like that. So I know that I've been hearing Democrats in Ohio complaining about the uh, obviously uh, the, the congressional lines, for example, that were drawn to obviously benefit Republicans. I think that's pretty clear. Um, how do we know that if Democrats are elected uh, in this cycle, if you guys have a better year, that you won't turn around and do the same thing for Democrats? So, uh, you know, the, what is what is uh, Albert Einstein? Had, I think he was one who said, uh, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Okay. <laughs> Look at uh, Dave Yost, who I'm running against, right? And uh, John Husted. Uh, we're on the reapportionment board who drew the lines for the state house. And you talked about the congressional lines. The state house lines are worse even. The state house lines in Ohio, it's like the worst gerrymander you could imagine. I don't know. You're comparing two really bad things together. I tell people it looks like a Rorschach test drawn by a blind guy. It's just absolutely outrageous. And you, to put them back in the, and they, you know, remember they locked a room. They rented a bunker at a at a motel or a hotel a couple blocks from the state house. They locked the doors for like two months and did it in secret. So one of the things that I and Kathleen Clyde have talked about is we need this process to be done in the open. Of all the things I've seen in government, this is the one process that will change the most if it's done in the open. The press needs to have access to it. The people need to have access to it. And we put out, one of the first things I did in this campaign was with Kathleen Clyde put out a very specific plan that I think needs to be enacted. And this is whether it's Republicans or Democrats. And it calls on, you know, making sure that in real time, draft maps 
are actually shared with the public. It, it makes sure that you can't specifically structure meetings to avoid Ohio's open meeting laws like they did last time. You know, it, this is all public, right? Dave Yost was briefed alone, but right in line with the other four members of the apportionment board so that they wouldn't have to have a meeting that the public could be part of in this bunker. It's just crazy. And so to me, we have to make sure the process occurs in the open, and that's Democrat or Republican. And I will tell you one thing. As attorney general, uh, if people are trying to get around the open records law, and I don't care if they're in the same party or a different party, and you guys know I have prosecuted Democrats and Republicans, you know, they're going to have an attorney general who's going to be all over them. You know, it is not my job to be on the, uh, on the different panels, right? I'm not part of it. But it is my job to make sure they're following the law as they do this. Uh, and you better believe we need to do that. And so, uh, and, and I will just say here to you, Democrats and Republicans alike need to stop this crazy gerrymandering. It doesn't help the public. It just doesn't. It makes it so we can't agree uh, on compromises that are important on, on fundamental things that help our state and the people here. Uh, it puts us at a competitive disadvantage with other states, and it also puts us at a competitive disadvantage with other countries on the national level. We just need to stop it. Um, and so I say that I think Democrats and Republicans like, and I think you guys, the, the press, is a huge part of that, you know, uh, and we need to let you in there so that you can hold people accountable. So another fun fact about you is that you went to uh, Harvard Law with, with Barack Obama. So what was he like in school? What was he like back then? Uh, you know, uh, he was, uh, the, my main contact with uh, the president during that time was, uh, you know, I was a basketball player. So uh, we were in the same pickup game many days during my time in school. Uh, and uh, he's a pretty good athlete, first of all. He's a pretty good basketball player. Uh, pretty intense. That's not a surprise. Uh, a nice guy, smart guy. He was in my constitutional law class. I remember that. And uh, I always joke with people. People say, well, would you have uh, expected uh, him back then to become president of the United States? And uh, I always say, well, it, it, it's hard to picture any person that you know in school becoming the president. I mean, at least for me, that just is, uh, it's just hard to even understand that or wrap your head around that. Uh, but if you had gone to the law school class and you had said, somebody in this class is going to be president. I'm telling you that. I have a crystal ball. Everybody take a piece of paper out and, and write down a name and tell me who it's going to be. Actually, it's Harvard Law School, so a lot of people are full of themselves. So you have to say write down two names because people write down themselves. <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, I think you know a significant number of people probably would have written down uh, his name. Uh, he was the president of the Law Review. Uh, he was a very, very smart and still is a very, very smart uh, uh, person, and uh, he always had a gift for for getting along with people. Uh, and you know, I think right now, uh, where we are in our in our country, uh, I think we miss that quite a lot. You know, you can disagree with people without being disagreeable, and I think we need to get back to that Democrats and Republicans, where we can actually not get to back off this name calling and start getting things done for the people who expect us to get things done for them. Do you think he's a better basketball player than Dave Yost? <laughs> I, I, you know, I absolutely think he's a better basketball player than Dave Yost, and I've never seen Dave Yost play basketball, but but I've learned politics well enough to know I better say that. You know, the guy endorsed me. I don't think Dave Yost is endorsing me. I don't know anything about Yost's uh, athletic prowess, but he's pretty tall, so that probably they can't hurt. Um, but we, we found an article in The Plain Dealer that described you as six foot five with an eagle-like wingspan and a prolific shot blocker at Hawkins School. 
Uh, were you any good? It was okay, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I uh, still have, I think, to this day, uh, single season uh, block shot record there. Now, now, you know, that wasn't, uh, you know, uh, Ohio State basketball. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, were, we I, I was okay back in the day. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not playing as much basketball now as I used to. The basketball I play now is I can still beat my 12-year-old son in horse every time almost. I think he beat me once, but I have a pretty good streak going now, David, and I'm coming for you. Have you ever uh, played against Cordray? Uh, I have never played uh, with or against uh, Rich Cordray. He described, he compared his game to us, to Kevin Love. Do you have like a professional basketball player that you would compare yourself to? No, I don't. <laughs> I was a pretty decent basketball player. But, you know, one thing you discover if you ever play with somebody who's at the level of an NBA player, uh, it's, a, it's, like, it's like playing golf with somebody who's on the PGA Tour. Uh, it's a whole different game. You know, uh, they're they're doing a whole different thing in a way that that those the rest of us mortals do, and uh, certainly at 52 years old, playing horse with my 12 year old son in the driveway, uh, I wouldn't pretend to compare myself to one of those guys. And then just another fun fact: you uh, did play by play at Dartmouth for I was I assume as a basketball team. Do I have that right? I did, I did, I I, uh, I did play by play, and uh, I have to uh, to give the uh, the the long awaited uh, confession uh, that everybody's waiting for in this campaign. Uh, there were times where I actually copied Joe Tate a little bit on the play-by-play. I remember being there at whatever University of Maine and talking about the foul shots. And for those of you who remember Joe Tate's call, I remember saying, sights it, shoots it, got it. And then last question, uh, your wife was born in Mexico City. So we're wondering, did you guys watch the World Cup? No. Uh, so uh, my wife uh, was born in Mexico City. Uh, I think it's fair to say that I'm not watching a lot of sports on television these days, unfortunately. That's, that's probably for the best. <laughs> it's probably for the best. All right. Well, Steve, uh, thanks so much for joining us. I think that's all the time we have. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I appreciate it.